Welcome to the London Politica podcast. This is where we join industry thought leaders and experts to uncover the nexus of politics, markets, and society. My name is Manas Chavla, and I'm so excited today to be joined by Livia Paggi. Livia is the head of political risk at GPW, where she advises multinational clients on doing business successfully in some of the world's most challenging markets, with a particular expertise in Russia and the wider Eurasia region. She also appears frequently on BBC, on Bloomberg, CNN, and the Financial Times, presenting her unique take on all sorts of geopolitical developments. Livia, it's so wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So... You know, with everything going on in Russia right now, I'm assuming it must have been a really uh, busy last couple of days for you. But I want to start off by addressing the elephant in the room, because just hours ago, Russia's prosecutor suspended the activities of Alexei Navalny's nationwide political organization uh, ahead of a court ruling this evening, I believe, that's expected to outlaw the opposition movement uh, as you know extremist designation so far that's mostly been reserved for just terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Um, I'm wondering, Livia, what do you make of this move, particularly the timing of it and, and the consequences it'll have for, for Putin's stronghold on Russia? So I think the first thing we need to acknowledge here is that Navalny is, there's a couple of things about Navalny. So first of all, Navalny um, is widely reported on in the Western media, and one gets the sense that he has huge momentum in the country, could almost topple this Russian regime, is um, a real threat to Putin personally. But actually, if you look at some of the latest polling in Russia, only about 19, some of the recent polls I saw, but only about 19% of the Russian population approve what Navalny is actually doing or agree uh, with his position in country. So that's not huge. And a second interesting data point is, is that the latest polls, although Putin's overall popularity has declined over the past year, um, and he's been in real trouble with COVID and then the collapse of oil prices, approximately 60% of the population approves of him. So his approval ratings are around 60%, between 55 and 60%. That's actually very high. I mean, very few Western leaders in Europe have that high of approval ratings. So I think we need to put into context where Navalny fits in and how big of a threat is he actually to the long-term stability of Russia or even in the sort of the short-term stability of Russia. So what I would say is, is that, yes, Navalny is a threat uh, to Putin, and we can get into this why exactly he is, but I don't think we should overestimate his capacity. He's not ready. He, his movement is, is big, but it's not, you know, huge that any moment, you know, Putin risks uh, having to step down because of Navalny. So that's the first point I want to make about Navalny. Um, now, the second point, I think it's really important, and then we can come into this actual outlawing of the organization. There is no doubt that Navalny is a huge thorn in Putin's thigh, though, right? This is, there's no doubt about this. And why is this? This is because... Um, his exposés and the anti-corruption material that his organization produces has huge impact on people. It gets millions of viewings. 
Um, corruption is something that Russians have long lived with, but are actually very, have become very intolerant of. Um, there's something, you know, especially as the social contract with the government has been eroded over the years with the, the collapse in oil price. And where, however, also we see, and this is in the political risk field, um, clients are concerned by the exposés that Navalny produces. We have had Western clients and investors who suddenly see a potential joint venture partner or one of their partners being named in these exposés, and now that's out in the open. So investors have to then suddenly realize that they're exposed to possible regulatory and you know, corruption risk if suddenly a partner who they didn't know about shows up in one of these exposés and so forth. So that really... Um, creates an issue. And it creates an issue also for Putin and his regime, right? That they, people are, you know, these partners are coming up in these, in, in, in English language or available, and suddenly they're having to, you know, are, are under huge scrutiny. And also you can't underestimate, for instance, how much Navalny's exposés impacted sanctions in OFAC. OFAC used a lot of these exposés for their research to identify who they should be sanctioning. So, he doesn't have a mass following in Russia. We can't say that he has a very strong following and what he's done is remarkable. Uh, but his impact of this research that he produces actually has a lot of um, repercussions for the Russian government. And it really puts him in the international spotlight as well. Um, and then, so thirdly, then the last point I want to make on this is that uh, why would they outlaw this organization as terrorists? So my understanding is, is that, and it'd be interesting if you have views on this as well, is that my understanding is, is that if you outlaw this organization as a terrorist organization, anyone who has been involved in it in any shape or form, even in a Telegram channel or whoever, can somehow be swept up. So it's a, it's a very aggressive law to really cast your net wide and basically scare and involve anyone who's been associated or even talked or, you know, maybe donated. Um, and that is really a way to destroy the organization by putting, by, by associating it as a terrorist organization, you're putting very severe repercussions on it. And that's especially important because a lot of people in Russia may be scared to demonstrate or protest because they don't want to get arrested. They have families and very reasonable reasons why you don't want to put your life on the line. Um, but donate to Navalny. Right. So you could even you could work, be working at McKinsey or these consultancies that have banned you attending protests, but maybe you you can't attend it, but you want to donate. But suddenly, if you're labeled as a terrorist organization and you're donating, you're donating to a terrorist organization. Right. That makes you think twice even before you then donate. So it's a it's a very aggressive way to basically bring the organization on its knees and scare all of its even passive, more passive supporters. Certainly, I mean, I completely agree. I, you know, just within an hour of uh, the the prosecutor making that move, uh, Navalny's entire campaign had shut down over Telegram because it just was no longer safe for their uh, associates to carry out the work they do. I mean, the Russian sort of police forces started identifying people through, I believe, it was CCTV and just facial recognition, and yeah. then. Uh, going after them and, and donors, like you mentioned. But I want to go back to a point you sort of said initially about how we, in kind of in the Western media, overstate 
sometimes Navalny's uh, support uh, within Russia. You said it was around kind of 19% compared to sort of Putin's 60 or, or so something percent. Um, I'm just wondering, firstly, why is that? Why do we uh, under, overestimate, you know, uh, support for Navalny? But more importantly, uh, how far away is he in this campaign to kind of actually present a meaningful opposition to Putin? Like, if you had to put a number on it, you know, where would he need to get? Uh, and how feasible is that? Yeah. So to answer your first question, I think, you know, as we all know, relations have hit an all-time low. I mean, it seems like every month we're saying they're at a new low, right? So they've been hitting a new low since 2014 on a monthly basis with very little uh, improvements. Um, There was some speculation that they would be improved. They they improved under Trump because Trump was a, a Putin supporter, but actually some of the toughest sanctions we've seen were rolled out under Trump's administration. So whether that was him driving it or someone else, that's questionable, but certainly uh, relationship did not improve under the Trump administration, and it doesn't look like it's improving under the Biden administration. So there is a lot of, uh, I, I do think press can be biased. Uh, well, it is, all press is, and, and all press has agendas, and, and that's absolutely fine. But, you know, this, uh, I, I think the, the attention given to Navalny is is in part because uh, there, there, there is a sense that, you know, he, uh, there is a want, there, there's a, a desire to believe that there's an opposition figure who could could, uh, legitimately challenge Putin. And there's almost, I don't know, you could say a hope or an aspiration in that, which gives him a lot of coverage. Um, And certainly, uh, you know, I I think we can say also that the Western press does like to, um, you know, rightfully so, you could say, to, to challenge what is what they perceive to be as dictators and authoritarian governments and, you know, breathe life into what they could consider potential democratic movements. And Navalny is viewed as a, you know, grassroots democratic movement. So I think that's why you get so much coverage. It's not necessarily intentional that they're trying to distort the picture, but he gets coverage because there's, he's, he's useful for the Western narrative. And there's also a genuine belief in what he he does. Um, So I hope that answers that question. Um, But I think, uh, secondly, you know, how, what his power is in the country. I mean, I think that's, that's a very difficult to say. I mean, I, from the, my research, I don't think there's an indication that in the short term he has the, the, the power to, to, to meaningfully, uh, create government change in Russia. Uh, but certainly, uh, the smart voting system that he created, which enabled to, uh, you know, in Eastern Russia, uh, suddenly to get new candidates to, to that people could vote for new candidates. Um, so that's genuinely creating a whole new grassroots movement in a part of Russia that never really had meaningful, any kind of meaningful opposition or plurality in the political system. Um, he's uh, certainly with these corruption exposés, he's bringing, shedding huge light. Everyone knew what was going, knows what's going on secretly, but to actually have it so explicitly laid out and the wealth laid out in front of your eyes like that, I think that, you know, does seed, uh, it certainly seeds, you know, a, a, a discontent. It, it, it starts to form the basis of something larger in the, in the future, which certainly hasn't existed in Russia before. 
Certainly, yeah. And I think, like you mentioned, I mean, Navalny's been a trailblazer in sort of the anti-corruption crusade, and you know, he detailed uh, sort of an expose about what he called the Putin Palace, which allegedly cost more than a billion dollars to build. Uh, I think it was something like 39 times the size of Monaco, quite astounding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and to most Russian people, I don't think that was a massive surprise because, like you said, after all, the Russians seem to have this sort of tacit agreement uh, with the government to kind of overlook some degree of corruption in exchange for economic uh, growth and political stability. Um, but do you think these kinds of exposés, if there are enough of them uh, in volume uh, and uh, in the scope that they cover, do you think enough of these exposés can actually lead to a meaningful shift in the Russian social contract? In other words, what could be the tipping point here? I mean, I think a lot of it's going to depend on economic recovery from COVID, how that pans out, and that's not really clear yet. Um, there's been some studies to show that actually Russian, uh, a lot of the country's uh, ability to recover from the pandemic depends on trust in institution, uh, things like uh, availability of vaccine, trust in institutions, um, and generally uh, a system in place that can roll out a vaccination program. And Russia really doesn't score that highly in any of those things. Obviously, they do have a vaccine, but actually the distrust in the population to take it and the distrust in the government generally over how they're handling it was extremely high. So I think things like recovery from pandemic, things like oil prices, sort of what will be the perfect storm. It's a, it's a little bit unclear. 2021 and 2022 is really where we're going to see the scar tissue from the pandemic. And in Russia, we'll see that. And I think that in many ways is going to determine the trajectory of uh, any opposition movement and, and, and the population's tolerance um, for change. And I mean, I think we can't also underestimate how, how much uh, has been constructed under uh, Putin as well. I mean, you know, a, a solid middle class came out. That's a lot of it's in part because of high oil prices. But, you know, he has um, made significant political and economic advancements for the country as well. And it is always that that balance. Um, so to answer what's the tipping point, difficult to say, but certainly oil prices and economic recovery from COVID will certainly give us a much clearer indication of what the social tolerance will be for uh, Putin's government in the next few years. Right. And looking a couple of months ahead, we also have the legislative elections coming up in Russia uh, scheduled for the September. Um, what are we what are we likely to see here? I mean, could these elections potentially be a springboard for popular demonstrations against you know, Putin's regime or is it going to be the same old thing we see again? I mean, there was also elections last September, Duma elections as well. And I mean, there was a lot of polling that indicated that United Russia had lost a lot of its popularity. And there was a sort of hope that, especially in Karabakh and other areas, that, you know, uh, potential other figures could win seats. But actually, then the results came in and United Russia kind of came in with landslides. So I'm not entirely optimistic about these uh, um, elections coming up in, in September. Uh, in, in terms of any form of meaningful change. Um, that's also in part because the electoral system's so entrenched and it's very uh, controlled as well. And that's a very sort of, yeah, that's a highly controlled process that that takes place. Um, so I, I do have my doubts on that. And I, it, it seems likely that United Russia will come through again. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think many people are optimistic either, but, um, you know, to entertain kind of a hypothetical here, 
say this is the end of Navalny's sort of opposition campaign with what we've seen today, or maybe perhaps in the last couple of mo- in the next couple of months, um, how do you think we might kind of remember that uh, if if this is a- after all the end of sort of Navalny and what he's doing? I mean, is that going to be seen for Putin as you know revealing a genuine fracture uh, or actually eroding his legitimacy in any substantial way, or? Uh, is the fact that Putin ultimately kind of, you know, rides out the Navalny wave even going to sort of reinforce uh, domestic legitimacy uh, in him? Um, I mean, I think that I, I, I think even without, let's, we don't know what's going to happen with Navalny exactly. Uh, but I think my understanding of the organization is, is that they're very well organized and they have, uh, you know, plan B, C and D and E, I mean, to make sure that the momentum continues with or without Navalny. And I think, you know, we have spoken to a number of contexts in Russia and actually not enough credit is given to Navalny's wife, Yulia. And Yulia very much is also, from my understanding, a real politician, even though she's often just seen as the wife of Navalny who accompanies him, gets him out uh, into Germany, gets him back in and is always there. She's actually... You know, a a huge brains behind the Navalny organization as well. And all the decisions, even the decision to take Navalny, uh, bring him back to Russia, even though they knew that there was such a high risk that he would be imprisoned right away. That was very much a political decision that they took as a couple. And it was an agreement in some way that they had that for the organization to survive and for the politics of it and the social movement that they've generated and grown, for that to continue. Continue, he had to go back, putting aside the family and his immediate interests. So I, I don't think, uh, and Navalny does have an amazing way of surviving everything. He's sort of like the cat with nine lives, right? So, or even more. So um, certainly even with a law like this, I, I, I still, I, I, I think that he has created a movement that will continue. Um, how, I, you know, Putin is just obviously fighting fires, right? I think he's trying to cut off the legs of any anyone or any organization that poses any immediate threat and send out a clear signal, and he's, and he's willing to keep fighting. That's the dynamic that, that we have. Um, but I certainly, again, I don't see any meaningful change in the short term, but these are sort of planting very, the seeds of medium term, long term. <laughs> Right, right. Um, and Putin keeps fighting, but it also seems like America, America keeps responding. I mean, uh, President Biden a couple of weeks ago imposed new sanctions on Russia uh, in response to their interference in the American elections, uh, you know, and that was following lots of other sanctions in months before. I mean, are these sanctions, you know, the beginning of a much you know, tougher policy on Russia? Uh, I, I recall one of your Bloomberg uh, interviews recently, where I think, where you said that uh, Biden's policy towards Russia has been one of harsh words and soft actions. Or yeah, so this yeah. is a funny one. Uh, so, um, I mean, Biden has always had harsh words against Russia, right? And he started off as president calling him a killer. And, uh, you know, and then it has really, but fundamentally, I do not believe Russia is the number one foreign policy threat to the U.S. The U.S. is concerned with China. This is, China. it's, whole strategy right now, foreign policy strategy, and even domestic strategies, how are we going to contain China, right? And that's really where the energy and focus is is going into how to handle that. Um, And for Russia, I, I, I think that Biden ultimately doesn't really, there's a cost benefit analysis. There 
isn't that much benefit to the U.S. by rolling out harsh sanctions that would alienate Europe uh, really, because very harsh sanctions right now. Who? What would that mean? Uh, sanctioning oil and gas exports, for example. I mean, that could be an, an option. Uh, they've already sanctioned all the key people around Putin. I mean, there's a few more that they could do, right? But the, most of the key guys around Putin are sanctioned. So really harsh sanctions means sanctioning sovereign debt, right? In the, but also in the secondary markets, but that would have huge impact on Western investors as well. Sanctioning oil and gas exports, well, Italy and Germany get something like 30% of their gas from, from Russia. So you'd be hurting major other European economies going down that route. Uh, what are the other options? Sanctioning major oligarchs? Okay, well, then you could have another Rusal sanction, right? So they sanctioned Deripaska, got Rusal, but that had major implications for the global tin market and metals market. So I think they need to weigh up these things, right? So yes, you can go nuclear option, but that also means that you're hitting other countries and investors who are just doing business with Russia. Um, and as we've seen, even there was all these harsh words thrown over the last weeks and it looked like there was about to be a war in Ukraine, but everyone seemed to ultimately have backed off, right? And again, the sanctions that were rolled out were not that harsh in practice. Sovereign debt, but sovereign debt in primary market, which then means you can still trade it and buy it in the secondary market. Not, not that tough, really. It's fine. It's manageable. And a few names no one's heard of, and a few diplomats who's no one heard of were also expelled. Sort of. So big headline, but substance, really not that much of an impact in practice. And 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 I just. Yeah, as I said, I, I don't think it's in the U.S. interest to fully alienate Russia. There's also key areas to cooperate with Russia, right? So you need to cooperate on climate. That's a huge policy of Biden's that he's bringing forward. You need the Russians on board to cooperate on climate. Uh, you need to cooperate to contain China. Russians also want to contain China. If you fully alienate Russia, that's just pushing them into China orbit. They're right. Russians are already in the Chinese orbit. So I think he's playing a delicate balancing act. Yeah, and I, I think even if we look at the people that Biden sanctioned, um, they're not the kind of people that you know you'd sort of expect to be much damage done to. No, uh, no one's really, heard of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no one's heard of them. Who are they? Right, and, and so what really struck out to me was, um, I, I think a couple, perhaps weeks or months ago, uh, Navalny's campaign gave you know uh, Biden a list of you know, people like these are the oligarchs that you should be sanctioning. And these are the guys with properties in Miami and Florida and mansions there. Uh, and, you know, sort of all their kind of money shielded in Western countries. These are the people that you should be targeting. Um, and Biden didn't really use that list. Right. Um, why is that? I mean, that brings us to a whole other question, right? It's our it's our corrupt financial systems that we're all interconnected and that actually we, Western banks, I mean, I don't know if this is why specifically Biden, but this, what you're talking about, raises a whole other uh, slew of questions, which is, you know, should, should Western financial institutions have made huge uh, profits from managing uh, Russian oligarchs' money? Lawyers have made a uh, killing from representing these figures and our entire, you know, and, and, and Russians have become very good at using the UK justice system to fight their battles and have become excellent at laundering their money through the UK financial system. But 
again, uh, the UK, for example, enacted uh, what was the, the wealth order uh, regulation uh, that sought to basically sanction people who had unexplained wealth, right? You couldn't give houses to people. But again, that really had no teeth because really giving teeth to something like that means depriving UK services of, of a, a large chunk of business. And again, that's where they are doing their cost-benefit analysis. Who are we actually hurting when we want to sanction Russia? And are we willing to actually hurt ourselves as well in this? And that's, that's where we see then they roll back. Right. But, you know, some of these Russia watchers have kind of also uh, raised the idea of, you know, being hard on Russia, but maybe not through sanctions. I was uh, listening to a podcast last week. Uh, I think it was Ben Rhodes, a former former official under the Obama administration, who kind of you know raised the idea that like maybe the West should be doing what Navalny is doing and exposing these uh, sort of massive corruption networks uh, and sort of oligarchs that are laundering their money uh, and actually try to kind of disintegrate that social contract that we spoke about earlier. Um, is that is that something that's actually tenable? Do you think that's possible? Does does the United States have an actual interest to do that? I mean. The U.S. can certainly do this, but again, this comes to the question of how important is Russia for the U.S., right? A lot of words, but Russia is is just, and, and that's actually what, what made Putin's blood boil, is that he just wasn't that much of a priority to Obama administration. He just wasn't. And even now, it's not really clear. Russia is not viewed as the number one threat to the U.S. So how... The U.S. uses the human rights discourse in capital when there's a real strategic interest in uh, in some other political issue that they're trying to get at. They, I mean, rarely do we see. Well, I, maybe I'm generalizing now, but you know, the U.S. isn't going to embark on a human rights campaign for the sake of it without a major political interest in something it's trying to achieve. And if you've even, and as a general trend, taking a step back, I mean, we've seen the U.S. retreat over the past ten years since Obama, and even starting probably before, the U.S. has retreated significantly from the international arena, from the international order. We do not see the U.S. trying to influence Middle Eastern policy, as we've seen. They're retreating from Afghanistan. They are not a major player in Syria. We see China and Russia, though, however, upping their game in, in Africa, whereas the U.S. Is, is, has really... America first, in some ways, came before Trump as well. And this is in part because Obama wasn't really a strong interventionist. Then Trump came along, and obviously that was very explicit, America first. And and what does this mean? I mean, it just means that we are we have not seen the U.S. taking a major role or position in either a conflict or against a particular government or regime in about a decade, a really strong stance. We have not seen that. And Russia's part of that trend. And do you think that's a problem? I mean, like, do you think Putin poses enough of a threat, like, in the long term to uh, warrant a sufficient, a sufficient kind of amount of political capital being expended on the situation? I mean, that's a, that's a really hard question. I, I don't know how to answer that. Um, it, it, it depends. I, I mean... I, I think what we're trying to, we're seeing Biden now trying to take a bigger role in international diplomacy now. And we do see him trying to establish, you know, areas of cooperation. So 
you know, again, this issue around climate, that's a huge area of cooperation. Um, you know, there are things around terrorism that they're trying to cooperate around. And I do think that there would be enormous benefit getting buy-in from China and Russia on these types of global issues. Um, and I do think Biden is going in that direction. Um, and I think that would be much more productive way to deal with Russia than to certainly pull out the old human rights discourse uh, to to sanction a country when really the U.S. also has a patchy track record on lots of things as well. And it's just, but let alone that, it's just, it's not a very effective way of doing diplomacy. And we, we, we've seen that. It's just not that effective. It's not, Using human rights discourse is not necessarily the most effective way to engage uh, countries like China, like Russia, uh, in diplomacy and and, and getting uh, and, and in yeah establishing bilateral relations. It's just yeah, right. And and you know we're talking about human rights rhetoric in, in China and Russia. And I think there's an interesting crossover there because you know the last few months, every single month, like you said, even with U.S. China or U.S. Russia relations, it's been you know the worst. Uh, most deteriorating relations, uh, sort of lowest point uh, in, in a long while. Um, and listeners might kind of recall the U.S.-China summit that took place in Alaska a month ago, where we saw a lot of hostile rhetoric exchanged yeah. between the two sides. Yeah. Um, and and you know, bec- and I, I think that made a lot of people overlook just a week after that, uh, Russia and China uh, signed to join an agreement uh, where they rejected what they call the politicization of human rights, which is clearly aimed at the United yeah. States and the West. Yeah. So, I mean, what what is the future of Russia-China relations, and what part uh, what part does that dynamic play in the relationship with America? So it's interesting. So both countries have sought to de-dollarize their economies. Uh, so Russia's really made huge efforts to sell off uh, dollar debt and 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 minimize their exposure to to U.S. markets, which is really interesting and very smart move in a lot of ways. Uh, and that's why in, 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 in many ways, actually the damage of sanctions that did on their economy was actually much less so because Putin had prepared the country to navigate that and, uh, and by reducing its exposure. And so what, what that has meant is, is that Russia has become much closer to China over the past few years. And we see them collaborating on oil and gas projects. We see them, uh, you know, being huge players together, both in Africa now. So in the Central African Republic, they're both very active now in the, in the DRC, um, in Chad. I, I'm doing a lot of work on Africa now. And we see both Russia and China continue coming up. Um, However, it is an unequal relationship. Russia is the weaker partner compared to China, and that is an issue for Russia. So even in Central Asia, the Chinese are offering the Central Asian states all the infrastructure, right? All the cash. Russia still has political power, which is important. And obviously there's huge linguistic and shared history, right? As being a former... uh, part of their former empire, former colonies, but China has the upper hand still in all of these dynamics. And there was a huge gas deal a few years ago, again, when all the finances were then, the numbers were revealed on the gas, um, uh, on the gas transaction, it came out that, you know, Russia had really got the shorter end of the stick on this deal. So I think that's, that's the dynamic we're seeing. Yes, Russia's going towards China out of necessity, uh, they are announcing collaborations. Uh, they certainly view the world in a lot of the same ways, but Russia simply does not have the economic clout that China does and will not in the near future. And and 
that's something that they have to accept and they're the weaker partner. And are the Russians putting up opposition to that? Like when China's throwing in all this wealth in Central Asia, which really is their kind of former backyard, um, is that something that could actually drive a rift between them? I mean, I think there has been a bit, but, you know, uh, I mean, they, they don't really have a, a, a choice. I mean, that's that's the way it's been. I mean, so we've seen, for instance, in Kazakhstan, the, the Russians still have a lot of influence over industries like the nuclear uh, industry, the uranium industry, because that has so much st- strategic security uh, value to the to, to the country and to Russia, they're completely intertwined. So that's an area, for instance, where Russia is still remains influential. But oil and gas, I mean, it's a minimal influence compared to the Chinese in Kazakhstan, for example, um, which is an interesting shift. Um, difficult to, yeah, that's, I don't know if they're happy, they're certainly not happy, but that that's the way it is at the moment. Right. Right. No, really fascinating. I also want to kind of, shift this discussion a bit more towards the political risk industry and kind of an overview of it in general, because you've been in this industry for quite a while. Um, You know, what's, what's changed in the time that you've been there and what do you see changing in the future? Um, So first of all, this was a sector that really oil and gas and extractive companies wanted and needed. They are the ones because they were signing these huge 40 year contracts with the government they needed the political support. And I think now what we're seeing a huge shift, and this is fascinating uh, for us both who are in the sector now, is, is that now almost, nearly all sectors are exposed to political risk and have to think about it. You cannot operate in the economy and markets that we are now in 2021, post-COVID, in a, in a political vacuum, basically. You need to be so aware of the di- wider trends that are happening. You need to be aware of your supply chains. If you're a tech company and you're operating in emerging markets, you need to understand how they're storing your data, right? Data is the new oil, as they say, but it is true. Russians are storing you know, tech companies' data. They're using the, the YouTube to uh, find out who's opposing them, who's not. So all tech now has to worry, tech policy teams now have to worry hugely about political risk. Oil and gas always and continues to be. Mining, now services, financial services as well, with sanctions, for example, you know, they have to be deeply aware as to who they're doing business with, who they're giving out money to. Um, and uh, what else? What other sectors are we working with a lot? Development banks, as there's, there's a whole reconstruction of the world post-COVID. All these banks now are giving out loans to rebuild uh, these economies. And everything touches on the issues that we've been discussing today, but obviously they play out differently in different countries. Is how, how resilient are governments? Um, what, what, what are the human rights repercussions? Uh, what, what, what are they going to do with our data? How can we negotiate good contracts? Are we going to get into trouble for negotiating such contracts? So uh, that's a huge... Uh, uh, there's been a huge diversification of types of companies that now really need cannot ignore these types of issues. Um, so that's that's a major change, right? <laughs> right. And 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 oil and gas and mining in these industries. I mean, they've been you know, kind of dealing with political risk services for the last 30, 40 years as, as yeah. soon as it kind of came out. Um, but I, you know, just even with working with some of the clients that we have at London Politic, I think uh, the the industry that's possibly least, you know, well-prepared to manage political risks uh, uh, is sort of just the tech sector. Uh, And a lot of the blunders that we've seen in the last, you know, five years, uh, every congressional hearing with Facebook, 
you know, all the sort of things going on with SoftBank and, and you know, other sort of unicorns. Um, it doesn't seem like that industry has really grasped the importance of uh, political risk, perhaps not as well as it should have. Yeah. Um, do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, that's just simply in part because of the fact that it started out in Silicon Valley with engineers, very different skill set. I mean, in some ways, the way oil and gas started out, right? Just technical people, oil, uh, oil engineers. And here, these are software engineers. And suddenly, they created a product that goes far beyond their border. So, you know, here they are in America on the West Coast create something that's giant, starts crossing over, you know, all borders. It becomes uh, totally beyond the U.S.'s control, huge markets to tap into. But then suddenly they're faced with, wait a second, we're having to deal with countries' political systems are entirely different to ours, and they simply did not have the skill set. So not only was there the whole freedom of speech issue, which is is just one aspect of it, but simply... Oh, so much of their consumer markets were in countries that had entirely different views of how tech should be used from how they viewed it. Um, and so it's not surprising now that their policy teams are growing at huge rates, that they're doing everything they can to get the best politicians to join Facebook, uh, to join other tech companies. A lot of, if you look at their policy teams, most of them are ex uh policy people in the White House who then go join them and from other countries as well. So uh, they're, they were playing catch up for quite a bit. <laughs> right, right. And, and then that kind of trend that you talk about, I think, exists in the entire industry of just, you know, ex-politicians joining uh, the policy teams of these big firms, uh, which is why I think it's super hard uh, for a young person, you know, kind of straight out of university, perhaps for a couple of years yeah. of work experience to be yeah. able to enter this industry and actually, you know, sustain a meaningful work experience from it. Um, what what advice would you have for for young professionals entering the industry? Yeah, so that's right because ultimately this is the industry of studying power and power dynamics, right? And power is notoriously opaque, right? Because if power was transparent, people wouldn't have power. That's the thing, and the industry reflects that, right? So this is a business where you're selling insight into how power really works. That's how I view my job, um, and uh, and uh, so that's why it's had to be so opaque, and that's why the whole industry has become opaque to reflect that because they're trying to sell effectively sell something, saying that we are the only ones who have access to this. So that that's the reality. But what I would say is, is that it's simply the way power and change now happens has also changed. These changes are not just top down. We have millennials, we have grassroots movements, we have NGOs. So many of the changes we're talking about, exactly like Navalny, how we started this conversation, these are real grassroots bottom up movement. So that means actually for people who want to enter this sector, you, we provide huge value and input into how bottom up structures are working as well. We don't need to just provide the top down insight of to what the military thinks about a situation. I mean, that's also very important, obviously, and a major piece of the puzzle. But the insight you can provide is enormous into how things are working in the ground, where are the social movements coming from. So there's it, it, it's changed dramatically how, uh, how um, you know, 
change takes place, right? So my advice to young people is actually, there's so much that you can offer in terms of viewpoints and fresh viewpoints, um, because a lot of these big old entrenched corporates simply have overlooked so much uh, of the major risks that have impacted them simply by not giving enough weight to an environmental movement or enough weight to a social movement. Um, And where young people can really uh, help come in and help is is by providing that those types of insights from the bottom up. But secondly, my my real uh, key advice for people who want to work in this sector is is that regional expertise is very important. Understanding having foreign languages or or not necessarily foreign language, but having a real area of expertise that that that's yours. That no one can take that away from you. Right. This is a huge field in international relations. It's it basically means we're studying the world. So where are you coming at something? Uh, what's your specific view? And, and really cultivate that. I started with Russia and the former Soviet Union. Now I cover emerging markets globally. But really, the way I made my mark was I had really specific expertise in Armenia. These countries no one had ever been to are Armenia, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan. I, I was 23 when I went to Tajikistan. I was on the Tajik-Afghan border. And I didn't even know where Tajikistan was when I first went there. I had to look it up on the map. But that... You know, no one could take that away from me, that that level of expertise. And that's where you start slowly adding value and then you build up. Right. No, definitely. <laughs> um, and, and, and that seems like to be the general trend as well. Like Ian Bremmer started as, uh, you know, an expert was it in Kazakhstan yeah, uh, and yeah. then built his way up from there last yeah, week. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, because you've got to start somewhere and having niche knowledge of a country that no one's bothered to learn, you know, everyone, everyone sits back and pontificates. But when you come in with a very specific area, um, you know, that that's where your value is. And I really recommend that to, to young people in this field that get you know, stay clear from some of the broader IR stuff, the IR theory, stay, you know, stay clear from sort of general uh, topics around conflict theory and all these things. I mean, those are great if you're interested in academics, but if you really want to get onto the practical nuts and bolts, do get field experience, get out there, get on the ground. That that's how you learn. That's, that's where you understand how the world really works. Right. And I, and you gave a really pithy kind of description of the industry when you said, you know, this is about understanding how power works and, and where power is located. And I guess like the value proposition of every political risk firm or every analyst is how they can locate that through their network. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of reliance on human intelligence uh, yeah. and human sources has sort of dominated everything that these firms seem to do. Uh, but for a young person entering this industry, I mean, it's not like we have, we know tons of people on the ground. Uh, is there is there a faster way to develop that? But that's what I mean. So if you go out into the field, right, you will develop your contacts. And it shouldn't be that you're necessarily, but those are your relationships. That's part of your journey of learning about the world is meeting people and talking to them. So that's why I really do recommend going out into the field. So for instance, we recently used someone who had spent a lot of time working at NGOs in Central Asia, and that was invaluable to our project because he had bothered in his 20s to go out and spend time working in that area. But you know, very few people actually have that access to the NGOs sector in Central Asia, for example. I myself started out in the NGO sector in Central Asia, and I developed invaluable contacts who accept, people sat down with me and explained to me how, how things actually worked in practice. Not It's not like this, but it's really like this. So that's, the contacts don't, 
that's just a fancy word for for meeting people actually you know that's just a networks <clears throat> that's just that's all fancy fluff around actually what you and I are just doing, having a conversation about how things are happening in Russia. I mean, you know, so I think, I, I, I mean, I don't need to, oh, I think there needs to be a lot of sort of demystifying this whole source thing. I mean, it, it's, 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 it's just your experience in meeting people who are explaining things to you and then your ability to analyze your ability uh, to, to then, to then take that to the next level. Um, and, and I think young people, that's, that's in everyone's capacity to do that. There's no, there's no real mystery behind how that works, actually, even though firms like to sell that as, uh, address that up. But that's, yeah. <laughs> right, right. And a really interesting advice. Livia, to kind of close it off, I mean, if there's one thing you could tell 20-year-old Livia uh, kind of thinking about entering this industry, uh, one nugget to leave our listeners with, what would that be? Um, entering this industry. Let me just have a think. Um, it's what we talked about. Just get out there, push yourself, be courageous, mm. get out there, and then just keep going. There are so many ups and downs, so many ups and downs, and you just keep marching forward. I, I can't tell you, I had an, an, an analyst uh, yet last week call me saying, you know, I can't find a job. I keep getting rejected because I'm so junior, and I, but how can I get in if I'm too junior? And I just said, keep going, keep going. And I just saw on LinkedIn post that she just got a job, right? So it's like you just keep going, do what you're doing. You know, if you, if you can't get your foot in, then invent it yourself build up your own consultancy, just find ways. You just got to keep going at it, going at it. And it's the only advice I have because it's the only thing that's worked for me. (laughs) So I don't have anything else to say. I just know that if you keep going, something comes through. Thank you so much, Livia. What an incredibly fascinating discussion. Uh, you know, one I'm sure we're going to keep thinking back to uh, as the Russian situation evolves over the next few weeks, yeah. but also as, you know, most of us make our career in this industry over the next couple of years. Thank you so much for joining us. Wonderful. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, to find out more about London Politica, visit our website, londonpolitica.com and follow us on LinkedIn. And that's all for this episode, folks. Stay tuned, stay safe, and I'll see you next week.